This semester, we're going to do a new series called What is Church, as you've gathered by now. And we're going to answer a few questions. And I guess what probed my thinking on this is, what comes to mind when you think of church? When you think church, not a church, but just the word church, do you think of a church? Do you think of a physical building? Do you think of the gathering together of people to worship God? Do you think of a pastor? Do you think of Bible? I mean, what comes to mind when you think church? Because I want to help this semester to define what a biblical church is. And so we're going to answer all sorts of questions. We're going to look at uh, a series of aspects of the church. We're going to look at who is the head of the church tonight. We're going to look at what biblical church leadership looks like. We're going to look at the start of the church, the persecuted church. We're going to look at uh, what the church is supposed to preach in sermons. We're going to look at um, the ordinances of the church, baptism, communion, uh, just to list a few things, including uh, the church in the end times and the church in the eternal state with God. So we're going to really try to just nail home this doctrine of the church. And the hope is, is that by the end of it, you are going to have a, a love and appreciation for Christ's bride, the church. I hope that you're going to plan to join us every week because I, I do believe this is going to create a love and appreciation for the church uh, by the end as we study God's Word together. So this evening, we're going to look at the headship of the church, and before we do that, I want to pray. Father, we do need your help tonight uh, in understanding your Word, in understanding spiritual truth. Um, Lord, our sinful state is is not natural to understand the things of God. And so we ask for your help. Lord, we ask for clarity of mind that you would focus our attention on what is being said from your word. Lord, that we would examine uh, from the Bible what a biblical church is. Lord, that tonight we would see specifically who its head is and that we would love uh, the head of the church, Jesus, all the more. Lord, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just answered this, but if I were to ask you on a test, who is the head of the church, I feel confident that most of you would, would put the right answer. Uh, who is the head of the church? Well, we know it's Jesus. But interestingly, through history, this answer was not always a given. And I'm not just talking worldly history. Through church history, this answer has not been a given. In fact, men and women were killed by other professing believers for answering Jesus to that question. I want to read the biography of a man named John Huss, just a short biography. Uh, he lived a hundred years before Martin Luther did in the Reformation times. And Martin Luther, when he was rummaging through a library stack, stumbled across some of John Huss's works. And he said this, Luther said of Huss, I was overwhelmed with astonishment. I could not understand for what cause they had burnt so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. Huss would become a hero to Luther and many other reformers, for Huss preached key Reformation themes a whole century before Luther wrote his 95 Thesis. But the reformers also looked to Huss's life, in particular his steadfast commitment in the face of the church's cunning brutality. Huss was born to peasants in, parent, um, in the town of Goose, town, and that is Huznik, in the south of today's Czech Republic. So we're in Europe. Um, he shortened his name to just being Hus, which was Goose. And it's funny because later on, Luther referred to him as the goose who was cooked. 
Uh, he obviously looked up to him a lot, but they, they had a good time with that name. Uh, to escape poverty, Huss trained for the priesthood. He said, I had thought to become a priest quickly in order to secure a good livelihood and dress, to be held in high esteem by men. He earned a bachelor's, master's, and then finally a doctorate. Along the way, he was ordained in 1401 and became the preacher at Prague's Bethlehem Chapel. And this church in Prague held 3,000 people. So every day, every Sunday, he would preach to a crowd three times the size of Grace's sanctuary. Uh, and uniquely, uh, John Huss actually preached in their language. He preached in the Czech language rather than in Latin. Uh, during that time, the Catholic Church had mandated sermons in Latin, and he refused. He, he taught the Bible instead. Uh, the writings of John Wycliffe had stirred his interest in the Bible, and these same writings were causing a stir in Bohemia, which Bohemia was located where modern-day Czech Republic is. Uh, the Czechs, along with Huss, had warmed up to Wycliffe's reformed ideas. They had no intention of captioneering traditional doctrines, but they wanted to place more emphasis on the Bible, expand the authority of church councils and lessen that of the Pope, and promote the moral reform of clergy. So Huss began to increasingly trust in scriptures, quote, desiring to hold, believe, and assert whatever is contained in them as long as I have breath in me. Well, a political struggle ensued with the Germans labeling Wycliffe and his followers as heretics. In the meantime, European politics continued as two popes vied to rule all of Christendom. Finally, a church council settled the matter and elected Alexander V as the true pope. Uh, but he was soon persuaded to side with the Bohemian church against Huss, who continued to criticize them. Huss was forbidden to preach and excommunicated this was only on paper, though. The local Bohemians backed him, and Huss continued to preach and minister at the Bethlehem Chapel. When Alexander's successor, the antipope John XXIII, authorized the selling of indulgences to raise funds for his crusades against one of his rivals, Huss was scandalized and further radicalized. The pope was acting in mere self-interest, and Huss could no longer justify the pope's moral authority. He leaned even more heavily on the Bible, which he proclaimed the final authority for the church. Huss further argued that the Czech people were being exploited by the Pope's indulgences, which was a not-so-veiled attack on the Bohemian king, who at that time was earning a cut of all the indulgences. Well, with that, Huss, as you can imagine, lost the support of the king. His excommunication, which had previously been dropped, was now revived, and an interdict was put upon the city of Prague that no citizen could receive communion or be buried on church grounds as long as Huss continued in his ministry. So to spare the city, he withdrew uh, to the countryside at the end of 1412, and he spent the next two years writing uh, works. And one of these works was titled The Church. And this was a really important work, and I want to read something from this. In it, in this document, The Church, he argued that Christ alone is the head of the church, that the Pope, through ignorance and love of money, can make many mistakes, and that to rebel against an erring Pope is to obey Christ. Well, as you can imagine, this stirred the pot. In November of 1414, a council was assembled and Huss was urged to the Roman Emperor to give an account of his doctrine. Because he was promised safe conduct and because of the importance of the council, he went. When he arrived, however, he was immediately arrested and remained imprisoned for months. Instead of a hearing, he was simply brought before them in chains and asked to recant his views. 
When he saw he wasn't going to be given a form for explaining his ideas, let alone a fair hearing, he finally said, I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge who is almighty and completely just. In his hands I plead my cause, not on the basis of false witnesses and erring counsels, but on truth and justice. He was taken to a cell where many pleaded with him to recant. And on July 6th of 1415, he was taken to the cathedral, dressed in his priestly garments, stripped of them one by one, refusing the last chance to recant at the stake where he prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. He was heard reciting the Psalms as the flames engulfed him. John Huss had developed a biblical conviction to this question, who is the head of the church? And for it, he lost his life. This doctrine is not a given. It wasn't a given then, and it's not a given today. Back then, the Pope was seen as the head of the church. And in fact, today in Roman Catholicism, the Pope is still seen as the head of the church. Just to read from the Vatican Council, uh, the Second Vatican Council, listen to this. This is a Catholic doctrine. The college or body of bishops has no authority unless it is simultaneously conceived of in terms of its head, the Roman Pope. Pope. For in virtue of his office, that is, as vicar of Christ and pastor of the whole church, the Roman Pope has full, supreme, and universal power over the church. He can always exercise this power freely. Infallibility belongs in a special way to the Pope as the head of the bishops. In his office as the supreme shepherd and teacher of all the faithful, he confirms his brethren in their faith. He proclaims by a definitive act some doctrine of faith or morals. Therefore, his definitions of themselves and not from the consent of the church are justly irreformable. In other words, the Pope is the supreme authority for the Roman Catholic Church. So then now and then, who is the head of the church? Is the Pope? Is the leader of any of these other cults? Or is Jesus Christ? And I hope tonight to firmly convince you and solidify in our minds that Christ is the head of the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, a couple of Corinthians, and Ephesians. Last semester, Tanner ended with preaching on this text. And so to segue from our previous study to this one, I thought we would look at Ephesians 5 as a reminder. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 22. Galatians, then Ephesians. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, 
And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, just to remind us, and as we now observe, Paul is talking about two things here. He's talking about marriage, and he's talking about Christ and the church. And the reason for this comparison, in my opinion, is that Paul is struggling to define an abstract idea, an abstract concept. Just like you can't see gravity, you can't see love, you can't see the wind, uh, you can see the effects of, of these things, but you can't see them. You can't see the headship of Christ. And so to give a picture of this, to demonstrate this, Paul gives uh, an analogy. Along the way, sure, he, uh, he explains some things about marriage, but really one of the main points of this is to describe the headship of Christ over the church. He says that as a husband is head of the wife, so Christ is the head of the church. And likewise, as the bride is to submit to her husband, so the church submits to Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom of the bride. He is her head. This isn't the only place that this is stated. If you listen in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, <clears throat> Paul again, speaking of Jesus, says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. Same epistle, Colossians chapter 2 at the end of 17, he says, But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Again, in Ephesians, if you're there, flip back to chapter 4. Verse 15, Paul says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ. And so we see Christ is the church's head. Now, as our culture wanes in its morality, there's an attempt to do away with this idea of headship because headship deals with authority, and authority deals with submission, and our culture doesn't like submission. And so they might, might say something like, well, Christ is the source of the church. While he is the source, guys, this is a huge understatement. Uh, if the biblical authors wanted to say Christ is the source, then they would have said that. And in fact, if that's what they meant, just look at Ephesians 5 again, let's plug in the analogy. Christ is the source of the church as the husband as the source of his wife. If I'm not mistaken, it's the other way around aside from Adam. Is that correct? Christ is not, or the man is not the source of the wife, and therefore the author is saying something entirely different here. And in fact, that kind of leads me to a, a small tangent. Getting this word right is so key, understanding what these words mean. This word in the Greek is the word kephale, and it means head. Uh, it can mean a physical head, but it also is used figuratively to refer to authority. And in fact, the theologian Wayne Grudem, he did a study of this Greek word in non-biblical texts. So all the way back from 800 BC up to about 300 AD, he studied this word kephale in non-biblical texts. And what he found was 2,336 occurrences of this word that was not referring to a physical head. And in every single one of them, it referred to a person who was the governing authority. Here's the point. 
The authors knew this word. Paul knew the range of meaning of this word, and he used it on purpose. He used it because he wanted to communicate that Jesus is the head, the governing authority of the church. He has supreme rule and right to own the church. Right? We're familiar with this use of the word head. The president is the head of the state. He's the head of the executive branch. He's the head of the armed forces of the United States. The biblical writers are using this to refer to Jesus' head because they want it to get into our heads that he is in control, that he is in charge. As one last example, I'll go to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll pick up in 17. Paul is praying for the Ephesians. He says at the end of 16, while making mention of you in my prayers, 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every, other, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, Jesus is stated as the head, but this time uniquely it describes Jesus' standing. He has been seated above all things. He has been given supreme authority and power. And as I look at this text, I think this. I think God could have given anyone or anything as the head of the church, right? He could have designed it so that an angel was the head of the church, so that a seraphim or a cherubim was the head of the church. He could have designed it so that a great man, say a prophet like Moses or Abraham, Isaiah, John the Baptist was the head. But we as the church have been given as our head the greatest leader in the universe, the one who already is head over the entire universe. Look at 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. We have been given a gift from God in receiving Christ as our head. God gave him to the church. So I think that we've seen and I believe supported the notion that Jesus is head of the church. I don't think many of us would disagree with that. But I want to ask the question, why is Jesus the head? What gives him the right to be called the head of the church? It would be enough for God to say, He's the head of the church, and us to say, okay, great. However, I believe there are several indications in Scripture that give Jesus the the right, the passageway to being the head of the church. And so that's what I want to look at tonight. Uh, To give us a more complete understanding of this doctrine, we're going to look at three reasons why Jesus is the head. And the first is that Jesus is the initiator of the church. Flip to Matthew chapter 16. First book in the New Testament, to your left from Ephesians, Matthew chapter 16. And listen as I read verses 13 through 20. 
It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he, said, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Here we see Jesus questioning his disciples with where they stood with regards to who he is. He said, who do people say that I am? But then he narrowed the scope and he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer could not have been more spot on. Look at 16 again. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter here acknowledges two things about Jesus. One, that he was the Christ or Savior or Messiah. And two, that he was deity. The title Son of God is not one that meant offspring, but it it deals with position and rank. And as the Son of God, Jesus holds equal authority and power to the Father himself. Peter here in this confession recognizes that Jesus was God and that he himself was the Savior of the world. Following this is Jesus' response, though, look at 17. He said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter's understanding of Jesus as Messiah and as the Son of God did not come through his own reasoning. It didn't come from another person. It came from God himself. God is the one who causes regeneration. God causes true belief. And indeed, Peter had been given this kind of faith But Jesus continues in verse 18. He said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I want to stop here for a moment and look at this verse a little bit uh, more closely. It can be interpreted a few different ways, but in any scenario, the point that we're going to draw from it is going to be the same. Now, the first way that we could look at this verse, some take it, is that Jesus' response is directed toward Peter himself when he says, upon this rock I will build my church. And I think there is truth to the fact that Peter was uniquely used of God, right? Acts chapter 2, he preaches, thousands get saved. Um, Wonderful. But there's no credence in this passage that Peter was to be the first pope in a line of succession of popes following this. There's nothing from this. And in fact, looking at this passage, I would actually say the evidence points to a different interpretation of what he's saying when he says, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. You see, the word rock here is actually used twice in this sentence. It's kind of a play on words. In Greek, though, both of these words are different words. They're not the same word. First, Jesus says from now on he would be called Peter. And the Greek word is Petros. In verse 17, he calls him Simon. Verse 18, he says, now you're going to be called Peter. And a Petros was a stone or a pebble, like a small stone that you'd find along a pathway, right? That's what Petros is. But then he says, so you are a stone or you are a pebble, Peter, but upon this rock, 
I will build my church. It's an entirely different word. It's Petra. It's a, a, a feminine noun, whereas Peter is a masculine noun. They are not related. They're somewhat related, but they're different words. Petra is more the idea of a huge rock, a big protruding rock. Really, it means a bedrock. And so Jesus is essentially saying, Peter, you're part of the puzzle. You're a piece of this. But upon this bedrock, I'm going to build my church. Okay? So now we have to figure out, well, what's the bedrock? And there's a couple of thoughts here. Uh, <clears throat> one stance is that Peter's confession that he just made is that bedrock. If you look at 16, he confessed he, that Jesus was God and that he was Savior. And Jesus is saying, hey, upon this foundation, upon people making similar confessions to that, putting their faith in me as God and Savior, upon that I will build my church. And this is the stance that I lean towards, and I lean towards it because, to me, that's what this entire passage seems to be hitting at. If you look in 13, his first question is, is really probing in order to draw the fact that he was the Christ out. If you look at verse 20, the end of the passage, uh, he warns them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So you've got that theme at the beginning and end. And Peter's confession, he says, you are Christ, the Son of God. And so to me, that's, that's the stance I take. Another stance that some take um, appeals to the geographic location of where they were standing the area where they were at in Caesarea Philippi was an area of pagan worship. And so Jesus could have been saying, right on top of this false religion, right on top of all this pagan and false religion, I'm going to build my church. Right through it. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Uh, they were standing on a rock that was used for pagan worship. And so, again, in any case, in any of those scenarios that you take it, the point is this. Jesus initiated the church. Jesus initiated the church. He introduces this brand new idea for the first time in history of an assembly called the church. And at the same time, he makes an incredible promise. Look at this text. He promises Peter that he is going to build his church. He's going to build a community of people set apart to worship him. He gives Peter his word regarding the church and its longevity. By the way, did you know that um, this is the same way that God creates? If you think about in Genesis, what did God do? He, he spoke, he gave his word, and then he created. And then it was. On the basis of God's word, it happened. And in the same way here, Jesus, he makes a declaration about what he's about to do, and then he follows through with it in Acts chapter 2. It's interesting because God and Jesus both could have just done it, but it's almost as though they want to draw a connection to them, to themselves as the creator or the initiator. God could have just, boom, the world's there. But he said, let there be light. And there was light. And so as we read that, we make a connection to God as the creator. In the same way, Jesus could have just started the church, but he says, no, I'm going to start my church. And then he started his church. And I think the point is this. Jesus is the initiator, the creator, and the head of the church. Number two reason why Jesus has the right to be the head of the church is that he is the cornerstone of the church. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. should be familiar with where that is now. And look at verse 19. 
The church has already been initiated at this point. Paul here is commenting on the nature of this newborn church. And in Ephesians 2, verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is really an incredible analogy picture that our Lord is painting through the Apostle Paul. Here we see the church as a living organism that is also being portrayed as a building. And in this building, there are three components— The first are the walls. And if you noticed, who are the walls? Well, they're the saints. The saints of the last 2,000 years and the saints today. Saints being those who have put their faith in Christ. These are the walls of this building. This text tells us two times that we are being built together into a dwelling place of God and later that we are of God's household. 1 Peter 2.5 says that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So this idea is not foreign to Scripture of this analogy of us being part of this building. We the saints are the walls and the structure of the building. Uh, But beneath the walls, the structure must rest upon a firm foundation. And the foundation, according to verse 20 of Ephesians 2, is the work of the prophets and apostles. Now, the prophets were those who spoke the word of God, a lot of times receiving direct revelation from him, proclaiming it to the people of their day, and often writing it down in Scripture. Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, you know them. The apostles were the individuals who were personally with Jesus. Apostle means sent ones, but the technical term apostle was someone who was with Jesus. And so they were, by extension, uh, doing a lot of Jesus' ministry. They represented him as they ministered. In fact, they were given unique powers and abilities uh, to heal, to do miracles, to speak in tongues. They were uh, very, I guess the word is foundational, (laughs) for the start of the church. They were uniquely gifted because of this exact reason, because they served as the foundation of the church. For the first time ever, they implemented the church. And so to validate that, they were given these miraculous powers. Many of them also wrote uh, words in Scripture, James and Peter, the Apostle Paul. They are the ones who were on the earth when the church began. And so... The prophets and the apostles are the foundation. And yet, there's a third level to this building, if you look at the text, uh, and that is the cornerstone. In the first century, when a building was built, the first and most important part of the building was the cornerstone. The cornerstone had to be placed correctly, had to be placed squarely, or the rest of the building would be off-centered. It had to be strong, seeing as all the weight of the building would be upon it, And the cornerstone would really tie the walls of the building together. Therefore, the cornerstone was the support, the orienter, and the unifier of the entire building. And in fact, if you've ever tried to build uh, with building blocks, or maybe you've played the, the game Jenga, right? Or you've just stacked stuff on top. If you get the bottom piece off, and then you try to follow that, the next thing you know, you've got a disaster, right? You've got the leaning tower of Pisa and you're trying to pull out a piece and it's just not good. And so I think we understand this concept that the cornerstone at the very base of the building is in fact the most important part of the building. 
It's the key to a strong standing building. In light of this, flip back to Isaiah chapter 28. If you go about to the middle of your Bible and then a little bit to the right, after Psalms, you should be around Isaiah 28. And we're going to expand on this idea of the cornerstone in verse 16. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Now, keep in mind, friends, that this book, the book of Isaiah, was written 800 years before the time of Christ. And in this book, in the verses we just read, we see this reference to stone or cornerstone even long before Paul would ever pick up on this language in Ephesians 2.20. And so I want to observe just a few character qualities of this stone from this text. First, we see that it is a tested stone. And actually, this Hebrew adjective can be translated passively or actively. It can be a tested stone or a testing stone. Right? In one scenario, you build the building and then you put the cornerstone in and you test it to see how well did you build the building, how straight. In the other scenario, you plant the stone first and then you build the building around it. Either way, the fact is the cornerstone was the standard of measure for the building. It was the standard. Uh, secondly, though, we see that this stone is a costly stone. The cornerstone would be the most costly. It would be the best material. The most precision and placement would be given to the cornerstone. Thirdly, we see that it is firmly placed. It is established and will not be shaken. It is planted with no intentions of moving. This stone is firmly placed. You may redo your walls. You may redo your interior in your house, whatever. The cornerstone is not moving. That thing is firmly placed. Fourthly, it's reliable, according to the text. In other words, he who believes in it won't be disturbed. The building will not collapse. You can trust it. If you get a good cornerstone, you can trust it. And fifthly, it says it's just and righteous. In other words, it had to be completely level and plumb. The cornerstone had to be completely level and plumb. And so we see the developing of a character who goes by the name of this stone or this cornerstone that's laid by God. However, this isn't even the first use of this idea of the stone from Isaiah. Flip back in Isaiah to chapter 8. It's really fascinating tracking this idea of who, where this idea of stone first came from and Perhaps it's here, Isaiah 8, verse 11. For thus the Lord spoke to me with a mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or to be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a, and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will, be, they will even be ensnared and caught. So again, we see this use of the word stone. And it's highly unlikely 
that Isaiah is just randomly using this idea of a stone in two scenarios without some sort of connection. There is a connection here. In this text, in Isaiah 8, we see the Lord calling men to put faith in him. If they believed, he would be their sanctuary. He would be a holy refuge for them, according to verse 14. But if they did not believe, then he would be a stone of stumbling that they would fall over and be broken. So then in this text, there's both a promise and a threat in conjunction with this analogy of the stone. And in the same way, in Isaiah 28, if you remember, lays out a twofold scenario. But there, though, the stone imagery is used a bit differently. In Isaiah 8, and catch this, God himself was to act as the stone. Okay, you can read that. For those who believe a refuge, for those who don't, judgment. In Isaiah 28, though, the analogy is changed so that God is laying the stone. The stone is laid by God. And again, Isaiah is not randomly using this. And so here's the question that I think we have to answer. According to Isaiah, who could be both God and yet distinct from him? Who could be both the stone in one use of that idea and yet laid by God as the stone? Well, it seems as though Isaiah has already answered his own question. If you look at Chapter 7, verse 14. I want you to read this with me uh, in your minds. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There would be a son named God with us, Emmanuel. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. <clears throat> For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Friends, Jesus is the stone, right? Jesus is the stone. He solves the problem. As the second person of the Trinity, he is both God and yet distinct from God. Therefore, the stone that the prophet Isaiah is referring to is none other than Jesus. And in fact, if you're at Isaiah 28, look again at this. In verse 16, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone. And in fact, Jesus would be the tester of the church. He is going to come back and test the quality of the church. He is the standard for the church. Uh, a costly cornerstone. Is there anything more costly than Christ? Than the blood that he has shed? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians we've been bought with a price. 1 Peter says that we are redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. There's nothing more costly than Christ. He says, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. Jesus died, he initiated the church, and his purposes will be accomplished. Nothing is going to upset the stone that has been laid and the church that is building on top of it. Fourthly, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. In other words, bel placing belief in Christ will guarantee eternal life. It will guarantee benefit and reward in heaven. There is no shaking doubt about it. It is reliable. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And lastly, I will, 17 says, I will make justice the measuring line, righteousness the level. And we know from Scripture that, that those two qualities, justice and righteousness, are in fact the foundation of the throne of God. From the psalmist, Jesus is going to judge his church and humanity in fairness and in perfect justice. 
And so we see, in summary, that Jesus as the cornerstone has a right to be head of the church. He is the, the true foundation in the truest sense of the word. He's the head of the church because he's its base, its cornerstone. Thirdly, though, and lastly, I want to look at the fact that Jesus died for the church. Flip over to Acts chapter 20, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in your New Testament. And as you get to Acts 20, verse 28, Paul has just sailed to Miletus. And in Miletus, he calls together the elders of the church, and he begins to instruct them on how they are to lead. And we're just going to look at one verse, one little bit of instruction. But look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul says, Be on guard, speaking to the elders, the pastors there, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. These elders were to shepherd the flock of God, which Jesus, the Son of God, had purchased with his own blood. Jesus died for the church. Therefore, Paul's point is that they were to take extra care of shepherding this church. It had been bought with the blood of God. This isn't the only place, though, in Scripture. Here's a few references. 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, Jesus is the Savior of the world, but especially to those who believe. The implication here is that while there are benefits to all because of Jesus' death, specifically the atonement is applied to those who believe. The invisible church comprised of true born-again believers. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Who are those who are set apart for God's own possession? Believers, the church, right? Who are those who are zealous for good deeds? The church. Therefore, Jesus gave himself to redeem the church from every lawless deed. John 10 is perhaps the most clear Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus lays down his life for those whom he knows and know him. He lays down his life for his sheep. But to wrap this point up, I want to return to Ephesians 5. We were already there once. Return to Ephesians 5, and in fact, we're going to look at the same text, just through a different lens. Ephesians chapter 5, to your right, from Acts, verse 25 this time, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Let me paraphrase this passage, and I would put it like this. Jesus died for the church by giving himself up for the church in order to sanctify the church by cleansing the church so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. In this same passage, what is interesting in verse 23 is the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. And so it's almost as though Paul himself is giving the defense of Jesus' headship by stating that he, in fact, died for the church. And if he's not giving a defense, there's at least a connection going on here. And I think the fact is this, guys. 
God died for something, therefore it gives him right to rule it. God died for something, therefore he has every right to rule it. Uh, In the beginning, I mentioned John Huss was inspired by the writings of John Wycliffe. Uh, We're talking Reformation times. Wycliffe lived in the 1300s. I just want to read a, a little bit from Wycliffe's writings about this. He said, We do not learn that Christ ever left preaching to sell offices in the church. All these things that popes do teach that they are antichrists. If they say that Christ's church must have a head here on earth, well, true it is. For Christ is the head of the church, which must be here with his church until the day of doom. To say there is need of another head is to impeach the power and the grace of Christ. Some men, however, have invented a false tale on this subject, saying, when Christ went to heaven, his manhood went on pilgrimage, and that he made Peter with all these popes, with all the popes, his stewards to rule his house, and gave them full power thereto before all other priests alive. Here, though, this dream proceeds amiss, turning the, turning the church upside down. For Peter was a true helper with Paul and John and the other apostles, but none of these servants dreamed that he was the head of the Holy Church or that he loved Christ more than any of his brethren did. It seems likely to many men that Peter loved Christ more in a manner than these other apostles, but he was not taught to strive on that account, for the other apostles in other manners loved Christ more than Peter did. John loved him more heavenly, and Paul labored more in the church." Well, as you can imagine, this wasn't so tremendously popular in the Middle Ages, uh, 1300s, but you can also see why Wycliffe was one of the guys that inspired Martin Luther and John Huss and John Calvin and a lot of the reformers that we're going to learn about in two weeks. Wycliffe was committed to Scripture, and as a consequence, he knew and could not get away from the fact that Christ is the true head of the church. And so in closing... We've looked at three reasons why he's the head, right? That he's the initiator, the cornerstone, and that he died. And so I want to ask you now, how do you view the church? Is church just another institution? Is going to church like deciding whether or not to go to the football game or the concert or the opera? Or perhaps you view it as equal to things like Bible study, chapel, even cross life. Jesus is himself the one that started the church. He's the very core foundation, the cornerstone. He's the head of the church, and he has promised to build his church and continue his church. He will sustain it because he has said that he will. And so let me ask you, what is your attitude towards church? Do you grumble about the style of music? Do you grumble about the leadership, about the people? Friends, this is the bride of Christ, right? This is the body that Jesus died for and has called to be separated from the world. So can I just give you a simple takeaway? Next time you feel yourself start to grumble about something to do with church, can you remind yourself that Jesus is the head of the church? That he's in control? He puts leaders in churches. He promises to build his church. He is in control of his church. He doesn't need us right, to build his church, but he chooses to use us. And we get to partake in this glorious and thrilling and satisfying privilege of being a part of his church. And so invest in the church. Be an active part of the church. Love the church and pray for the church. 
If you don't like it, it's probably because of sin, so pray for it. Pray for your leaders. Well, you may say, but surely Christ isn't exercising headship in everything that calls itself a church, is he? How do you know if Christ is the acting head of a given church? Well, you'll have to stick around through the semester to come to a good answer to that question. So in closing, let's pray. Father, what a terrifying, in a sense, reality that Christ is the head of the church, God. Lord, our attitudes toward church, I know, can be embarrassing in the fact that you know our thoughts, you know our minds, God. Lord, you are building your church. Lord, you are doing wonderful things even in this valley, in local churches, God. Lord, thank you that you have expanded the gospel to Gentiles. Lord, all of those who are not of the nation of Israel. Lord, you have made for yourself a people for your own possession to worship you and glorify you. And Lord, you use us to further the good news of your Son. Lord, we pray that our conviction with regards to church would be resolved, Lord, that we would be resolute in the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. No man, no human uh, of any sort, or not even an angel, but the Son of God, who is already ruler and head over everything, is our head. Father, would that bring about a great appreciation for the church? Father, we pray for those who aren't a part of the invisible church, who don't personally know Christ, that even now they would turn to Him, in their own hearts, God, that they would surrender their lives to him as Lord and Savior, just as Peter said. Lord, you are Christ and the Son of God. Lord, we pray that for unbelievers this evening as well. Thank you, Lord, for your word, how it is so clear without a shadow of doubt about this issue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.